Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Excited to be back in your ear and I hope that this finds you well wherever you are on this crazy planet of ours. I've been really thinking a lot recently about how the things that shape us, we don't really realize that they're shaping us till we experience the byproduct of the behavior we've adopted or the belief that gets in the way of intimacy or connection or the way that we communicate that creates some form of rock bottom experience or we make a choice that alters or creates, yeah, alters the direction of our life and gets us to a place, a dead end of some sorts, which, you know, we often experience regret about that decision or that thing, not realizing that if we sit in the regret, we are holding ourselves hostage to the inability to create new memories with the new integrated wisdom that the dead end or the rock bottom creates. And so we often spend our lives thinking about the times we should have done this or taken a left where we took a right, or, but we only know that's the right turn because we took, quote unquote, the wrong one. And that's why I don't you know, ultimately, there are no wrong choices. There are just choices that teach us. And that can be challenging to integrate and also challenging to learn about things before you hit any rock bottom, but learn about perspectives and shifts. And that, let's say, for example, your childhood affects how you relate today, right? And then if you dig into your childhood and the experiences you had or what your religion taught you, you start to experience the dissonance of how you've abandoned yourself. So you start to feel back into all the moments from that that day of of the trauma or the experience or the lesson that you learned either explicitly like they told you or implicitly by observing or, yeah, by what you saw or what you heard so what happens is, is that we look back at all these moments and we feel this pain from it, this regret, not realizing that it is in this moment today that we can shift. And I was thinking about that, that like the world itself, right? Like when we become build a positive uh, thought process or we change our thoughts, we change the way we communicate, we all of a sudden are like, holy shit, the world is so different. Like, holy shit, how was I not paying attention all along? Holy shit, like there's people who are good communicators everywhere. You know, like before our thought process goes, everyone's unavailable, everyone's toxic, everyone's this, everyone's that because we exist in a reality where that's true because of our choices, because of whatever. And it could be through birth that we exist in that reality. So by taking responsibility for our own thoughts, for our own existence, we start to build a different thought process. We start to see the world differently because now we're instead of looking for confirmation bias, we could look for a, uh, uh, we could start to frame our mind to look for how some of our beliefs are untrue, which is such a different way of seeing the world because that also invites you to ask your partner about their the view of the world, your friends, people that you don't agree with. And you start to think, oh my gosh, maybe is there any evidence that what I believe is untrue? And gosh, this is the same dissonance that we experience. You're probably experiencing it. I don't know if you're labeling it, but I'm experiencing it where I learn about and I don't want to get into a coronavirus tirade, but I learn about how they're calculating deaths and also the inaccuracies of the test itself. And there's a lot of details into why the test isn't accurate. But what it does is we're experiencing the media. Oh, the fear, the ooh. But then you see the numbers and you're like, wait, but those aren't actual numbers. And what's the real truth? And oh, why are we shutting down the world? So many people are suffering from that. Many people are dying from that. 
And it's hard for our brains to make it make sense. And when something doesn't make sense, you know, we're like, oh, well, what's the truth that lives below that? And this is the same dissonance that we can experience from when we see the world through a lens that causes us harm, right? That causes us stress, that causes us anxiety. We don't think about the influence of the media that we consume. And the news I know for me is directly 100% correlated to the level of anxiety I I experience. But when I'm not watching the news, the world isn't actually a terrible place, you know, not imminently, not in my direct reality. And I can obviously credit that to privilege and all of those types of things living in a country that's different. I get it. But my point being that when you consume the news, you are inundated with negativity, which then influences your body, influences how you see the world, influences how, you know, for example, the idea of asymptomatic carriers and all that, we're like taught that everybody is a biological threat. Well, if you can start to break down these belief systems we have, we can start to take responsibility for how we see the world and also how we feel. And what I love is that when you shift your beliefs and your process of how you see the world, you also then create a completely separate reality, which is fascinating when you think about that all the times we were focused on an unavailable person, there were available people existing, but we didn't think they were. So in some way, not to get too esoteric, but to think that this is the idea of multiverse, that there are multiple realities going on at the same time. And are you willing, which one do you want to participate in? Fascinating thought process, right? Because you can't change anything you don't take responsibility for, but when you take responsibility for it, not for the occurrence, but for the, you know, it's like you're not responsible for what happened to you, but you're responsible for what you do with what happened. And so when you start to take responsibility for how you see the world, you recognize that there are multiple realities existing. And that's why when you change your mindset, you so desire to want to help change someone else's. But you realize that when you're asleep or you're not paying attention to how your beliefs and thoughts affect you, uh, you're not open to a different way of seeing till you're open to a different way of seeing. You can't just like you can't undo a lightning bolt to create awareness to ourselves, you can't be the lightning bolt for someone else. But just offering openness and curiosity to their point of view actually makes it so they might be open and curious to their own. Fascinating, right? So we become, we start to do the dance where we are starting to create the reality for other people that we that we form through the way we change our thoughts. So I'm really fascinated by how these different things occur. And I wanted to bring someone on the podcast to talk about how, because there was a lot of stuff that came up in a video I did, we're going to talk about it at the beginning of this podcast on Instagram models and those types of things. And I wanted to look at how does pornography affect us? How does being inundated with these sexualized images affect us from childhood to today? Why might that you know, uh, explain some of the behaviors we see today that we don't like in our partners? Or why do we actually do it if we don't like it within ourselves? And so I have a really great friend, Laura McNally, who is fantastic. I'm going to talk about all her credentials at the beginning of the podcast we did. But she's fantastic. She challenges the way I see the world. I hope that occurs in the other way around. But I love that she's very research-based. She's very objective. She doesn't just follow what the media tells her to do or the narratives tell her to do. She's always curious and wanting to cultivate a world that is about more compassion, for more points of view, for more experiences. Uh, sometimes, you know, at the cost of being liked, which I love that. I love when someone is brave to face or discover truths at the potential cost of being liked. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating, and that is asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions, questions that determine if someone wants what you want, 
what you are, what your relationship status is, that that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately, asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level, gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that when I get feedback on asking questions, people say, that's too hard to ask, or it's too soon to ask that, or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, the deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones. So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, too much information, because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI, and building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks, and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with. And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit and swiped left and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about, is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. Before we get into the podcast, please, wherever you listen to this, please go subscribe and leave a five-star review and a written review. That really helps. If you love the podcast, please share the episode, tag me. And without further ado, here is Laura McNally. I'm joined by Laura McNally, PhD, (laughs) who's both a psychologist and author and all the things and also a good friend. And so welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Laura and I in the background have had some conversations about uh, one of the most, I would say, engaged in controversial slash interesting videos I've ever done was on Instagram models. And like, why does my boyfriend follow Instagram models? Should I be upset about that, et cetera, et cetera. And it stimulated a lot of conversation. So I wanted to bring Laura on to discuss like what is some of the research behind these subjects and and how and why they affect our lives? What is the research on um, the influencer um, impact of being an Instagram model? I think that's probably mm-hmm. relevant too. So thanks for being here and, and being willing to engage in this probably triggery conversation, you know, in some sense. Yeah, it is triggery. And that's one of the hardest things about this conversation. I've actually been um, talking and writing about topics like this for a long time. And uh, one of the topics I've written on a number of times is porn. And it really triggers a lot of people. And that initial trigger response 
it in a way often circumvents the conversation from happening because, you know, all of our emotions get heightened and we just, we can't really engage on an intellectual level. We can't really share what's going on for us. So um, it's really hard to have this conversation, Um, particularly, I mean, it's hard for women, but I think it's almost impossible for men because, for women, it's already so touchy. And it's like, don't come in here with your judgments. Like, how dare you? (laughs) So there's a lot of shutting down um, before the conversation starts. And that's probably the first thing that I want to say is like, nothing that I say or write about modeling or porn or, you know, following Instagram models or buying only fan subscriptions or whatever it is like I'm not saying anything to judge I'm looking at the research I'm looking at um, what people tell me how it's affecting them I'm looking at the kind of trends that it's having in society and I'm not ever saying well you should do this you you should stop watching porn you should never follow Instagram models like that's not my place i I'm actually not really interested in telling people what they should do. I'm just interested in telling people what the data says. Yeah, and allow them to interpret it as it, you know, comes in. It's information that allows them to make a decision about what's best for them. And I you bring up a really good point that whenever you have a conversation about anything that's triggering, especially something like pornography or Instagram models or whatever it is, is that it hits so many parts of us, the cultural narratives. You think about um, places like uh, Utah has been shown to be one of the places with the highest subscription porn rates, although it would also be seen as the one of the most religiously restrictive states. So, you know, it brings up that and then it brings up the mix of like sex and what we were taught in our families and also not enoughness about our own bodies, about our own sexuality and And that sex in and of itself has not been a very, uh, it's not an open subject almost at all. And I grew up going to a Catholic school, so I know that well, is that sex education was really just biological education. There was nothing to do with the emotionality of the experience. Then we, and you know, when you actually look at like uh, what people Google, you get a real window into actual human sexuality and actual like, well, where it can go in a dark way but you get this window into that we are highly sexual beings um, and that can be either directed towards deeper intimacy or it can be this way that we meet needs or get elation and we do it in secret, which I think, you know, following Instagram models or whatever that is, is a way to um, meet that need and often in an unhealthy way, which again is not a judgment. I'm saying often, not always. Mm, Yeah. It's interesting because um, one of the themes that seems to come up for women is that they feel pressured. They feel like men want to move very quickly into sexual connection. And men also want to try some things that they might not be comfortable with in bed. So there's this kind of sense of needing to have sex sooner and needing to do more uh, sexual activities that they might not be comfortable with sooner. And there's this sense of being pushed towards this outcome. So it's really hard because, 
you know, for the men on the other side of the equation who are perceivably perhaps wanting to go quicker, there's also a reason for that. It's it's not that, you know, the men that are wanting to engage in sexual activity are they're monsters and they're following Instagram models because they're just heartless and they're they're just objectifying women and they they don't use their brains and they're horrible men. It, it's not that simple. Like men are complicated just as much as women are complicated. So, you know, there's no what? and I what? one of the really tricky things is that often when women want to raise the conversation of uh, what's going on with men following Instagram models and why is there this explosion of Instagram modeling in and of itself and there's often this immediate kickback to women who raise these questions of well you're just jealous you're jealous, you're insecure, and if you were confident in yourself, you wouldn't even ask this question because you would just, you know, if you loved your body, you wouldn't care that there's Instagram models. And again, I think that's another way that we oversimplify and we don't give credit to the fact that people are way more complex than just jealous or just insecure. And in fact, you can be very secure in yourself, uh, very confident in your body, and still be concerned with the trend of women being objectified in society. There, there There's no, um, and in fact, the research on confidence levels and and how you look it's not as it's not as simple as you'd think it's not like attractive women are super confident and very comfortable with instagram modeling and very comfortable with women being objectified and and other women are just all very insecure and jealous like that's not how mm-hmm. the data actually works it's not that simple <laughs> it's not this simple line that differentiates <laughs> yeah, I mean, the confident and the insecure. Like, it's not like that. Um, well, it feels very gaslighting to just say, like, oh, it's because you don't, uh, you're not securing yourself. It, it really just dismisses and puts it back on the other person as opposed to how do we have, and I think this is similar to conversations about uh, politics too. It's like, how do we have this conversation in a way that we're not just right away dismissing the other person's side and, and really getting curious? So, what is it that you've found in terms of some of the, I guess, like alarming research or informative research or whatever Mm. you might call it? Well, I think maybe we start with like, let's look at where it begins. So it begins in childhood. And um, we're going back. We're going back. It always seems to go back. Right back, right back to the start. So the way that uh, girls and boys grow up in their earliest years, we tend to feel quite similar. Um, we tend to have similar confidence levels. We tend to feel equally confident about our bodies up until the ages of around seven to 10. It's when we first start developing, you know, some sense of sort of sexual maturity or, you know, and some children start going through puberty quite early. And and around that time, there's this marked change in how girls and boys feel about their bodies. Girls feel much worse about their bodies than boys do. 
Um, and there's a lot of research. The girl guides do a lot of great research on um, girls and girl body image and confidence because, of course, they have access to girls all around the world. And so they do a lot of like scaled research. And um, one of the biggest issues for girls today, girls that are, you know, 10 to 17 years old, the number one complaint is that they don't feel good about their bodies and they feel judged for the way they look. And so if we're talking about 10-year-olds. So young. It's so young. But at the same time, what's happening hand in hand with that is that society is changing. Like it's so different now than it was when you were a kid or even when I was a kid. Um People start being exposed to sexualized material when they are around that age, around 10. Um, Crazy. Because, yeah, yeah. we didn't have Instagram. We didn't even have the internet when I was 10. So, you know, let's go way back. But that in that, I I think about like what, as you were saying, I was like, what would cause that? And instantly I was like, yeah, being able to be exposed to images that are being celebrated and being... I mean, in marketing as as well, but like, you know, seeing that Kim Kardashian has however many hundred million, I don't even know, she has a zillion followers and be like, I mean, it's, I'm sure she says great things, but I would argue that it's probably not because of the thing she says that that many people are following her. Mm -hmm. And that's not a judgment. It's just, I think, an accurate observation. So yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I couldn't imagine having an iPhone and Instagram at 10. I was playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, so the interesting thing is that around this age, we start having these kind of digital lives. And of course, we start going through puberty, we start noticing that boys are different to girls. And suddenly, our attitudes and our confidence levels, sort of, we deviate girls and go in a negative direction. And for boys, it often goes in a positive direction. And so for, for girls, what's happening is that we're learning where, and we're being socialized in a world where the way we look is the most important thing. And girls report this in the research that they feel judged. They feel that the way they look is being judged over and above everything else. And for boys, it's quite the opposite they're being judged on how fast they can run, how good they are at different sports. Um, so their bodies are being judged, but their bodies are being judged for what they can do, not how they look. And that's a really important distinction because, of course, how fast you can run and how good you are at sports has a lot to do with your body, but it's a totally different way of perceiving your body. It's a, it's a way of seeing your body as something that is a vehicle for achievement. And it's, you know, this amazing thing that allows you to play sports and do all the things you love. And it's not just an object that people are looking at and judging you for. And this really important thing happens in the brain. When we know people are looking at our bodies, we change the way we think about our bodies. So let me give you an example. There's a couple of really good studies on this. If you tell people 
to uh, sit down and do a quiz. And one group of people, you give them a bunch of feedback about how they look, and then they have to sit down and do the quiz. And the other group of people, you say, you're just doing a quiz. This is what we're doing today. Jump right in and do it. And they just sit down and do the quiz without any negative feedback about their body. The people who got feedback about their body will perform on average about 30% worse. Because, Whoa. yeah. Because That's when you. Crazy. When you're thinking about your body, you go into this thing called, some people call it self-objectification, some people call it um, self-monitoring, there's different terms for it, but in essence, you're looking at yourself as if you're the outside observer, and that Mm -hmm. takes up a lot of cognitive performance. It takes a lot of mental work. And you can think about this when when you see people doing selfies and, and this is a big problem for girls. The more time you spend thinking about how you look, the less time you have to actually be doing things with your body as opposed to thinking about how your body looks. It's literally burning up your energy it's taking up your brain capacity you like the brain can only do so many things right so if the mm-hmm. brain is constantly thinking about how i look like if i stand in this position i look like this and do they think i look silly from over there and i'll adjust my face and the more you do that the less you have to put into other tasks like cognitive performance and that's why when you're thinking about how you look, you perform much worse on a test because your brain just doesn't have the capacity to focus on the test. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I also, I would imagine like one of the factors that would influence that interest on your thoughts is that you're also experiencing social rejection in some way if you're getting negative feedback on your body. So then you would naturally go into like fight, flight, freeze, fawn state, and then not be able to process as much because your prefrontal cortex be shut down the part that's like in part of problem solving and test writing. That's not really as online. So I'd imagine your resources, as well as you said, maybe they go into that, you were saying they go into that Mm self-monitoring place of like thinking about your body, Mm -hmm. trying to pick up a second person perspective, which would use way more resources than thinking about our own perspective. But Mm -hmm. I... With that, I would imagine some social rejection would go into there too. Exactly, and that's the that's the thing with the feedback, and that's the thing with um, objectification in general. You know, if if we're taking selfies and we're we're trying to look a certain way, we're going to get feedback naturally. And lots of people think, and here's another really important myth: lots of people think well, if we just tell women they're beautiful all the time, then women will feel beautiful and we won't have this problem. And a lot of people think like, oh, we'll just tell all people are beautiful. Like we'll just, because there's this, of course, in the media, you see the the particular type of body, you know, the thin, sexy, white, whatever woman. What if we just bring more bodies into the fold? We make all women sexy. It's like, actually, what we're doing is we're now just generalizing the problem to more people. And I'm not <laughs> saying, saying. 
I'm not saying that uh, objectifying and, and putting one body type on a pedestal is good. It's not good. And all body types should be represented in the media, of course. But by sexually objectifying more people, we're creating more problems. And so, like you say, you get this feedback and some a lot of times you get negative feedback because people on the internet can be very mean. Uh, but also... Yeah. But also the positive feedback. Um, you see women do this a lot. Like, you know, a, a woman posts a photo and I, I get the propensity to do this. I see my girlfriends post photos and I'm like, you know, you you look amazing. And I, I want to say that, but another part of me thinks like, I don't want to focus on how you look because I know what that's going to do to your, to the way you think about yourself. Like, it's not, how you look is not the most important thing. Even though you do look amazing, it's not important for you to think about that. And you notice that men and women are very different the way they interact with each other's photos online. For women, we do a lot of the, oh my God, you look amazing. There's a lot of, you look so skinny. You look so hot. You look so good. Yeah. And for men, there's very little of that kind of commentary. No, it's usually, I would imagine they just put an eggplant in there or like, you know, <laughs> it's not a, I'm interested as to like, as you said, you get both positive and negative feedback. And I've seen this in people's feeds, the experience that once they go through a breakup or whatever reason is the reason they start to post sexualized photos. And I want to qualify this. This is not judgment, just an observation mm -hmm. is that when they start to post sexualized photos, and then they start to get validation for that. You can see their feed completely change. You know that maybe they're feeling low about themselves because they've been ghosted. Or maybe they're feeling low about themselves because their relationship just ended and they feel rejected. And so they start to source worth. And, you know, as you were saying, you have these young men and women, boys and girls, really at 10, that are starting to post selfies or starting to, and uh, what you said is so interesting that, boys start to experience celebration for their performance rather than, and that is such a huge difference that because all of a sudden it's like one person is just being uh, gaining attention slash criticism just for how they look, not nothing, which the only thing they can then do to change that is use those little weird filter apps where they like aren't themselves and never, no one has bad skin anymore. Like I look at those and I'm like, God, are we de-wrinkling everything? Like, and I think this also comes back to a whole other thing, which is that we're so afraid of death that we really cling to youth and that is per perpetuated in this. But I really don't think that you can use a face wiping app or whatever those are called and love yourself in some way because the act of using one is saying my skin isn't okay as I am. Sure, you got a big red zit on your forehead. Cool, you dot that out, I guess, you know. But I, I just mean like I'm sure there's a place for them and this isn't a judgment. It's like I always think of the psychological price that these things cost, the, the impact on our mental health in some way. Mm. It's funny, yeah, the the app thing is actually becoming a real problem and I'm not really um, – I'm not like I don't worry too much about filters and stuff like that but but it's it's real it's different for me because I'm an adult and these apps are just becoming a thing where mm. for children right now they're growing up in a world where this is the norm and so it's like 
you don't know that the what the environment you're growing up in is actually shaping you in an un, in a harmful way for us it's so obvious these apps are obviously harmful because they're distorting the way real people look and you can see this um in uh the the way people are presenting for cosmetic surgery is often to ask for something that is how it looks in an app Whoa. because that's yeah. crazy, but that makes so much sense and not a big, like, now that you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, that just is rational. Because like, back in the day, the exactly, back in the day, it used to be the celebrity thing. So someone would go into the cosmetic surgeon office and say, I want to have a nose like this actress, or I want my lips to look like this other actress. But now it's like, we're looking at apps all the time. And the more you're you know, the more time you spend on these apps, the more you're seeing yourself through the lens of the app, which is the distorted lens. So it's not only the self-objectification of looking at yourself from the outside observer's point of view, but also from a distorted outside observer's view. So that now you're looking at your natural body as an outside observer and it's already not good enough because it's not filtered. So, you know, it's it's the layer upon the layer. And of course, then when you're thinking about changing your face a little bit, and I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but there's all of these, there's a lot of things you can do to your face now that are not drastic. Like back in the day, it used to be you get a nose job or you get a facelift. Now you just get a few little things injected here and there it's cheap, it's easy. And so that's why you can go in and say like, I want my face to look a little bit more, more like this filter. And you can get mm. a few little things injected and it's ki- it kind of gets done that way. That's bananas. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing marketing for a plastic surgeon slash, you know, anti-aging clinic, brilliant branding. And the, the, brand, the slogan said, start now, stay the same age forever Mm -hmm. and I was just like wow like I I think this also really correlates to the fact that we don't really value our elders anymore you know we don't really value the wisdom and it it all sort of obviously it all plays together it's all systemic it's all contributing one thing to the other and it's it, it it continues to perpetuate or the momentum perpetuate the momentum that we are disconnecting from what is natural, from what is, Mm -hmm. from what is mother earth, from what is, you know, and my, I have so much compassion for it. You know, I'm being my age, knowing that the internet wasn't around when I was 10 or it was just coming out. It's like, I wasn't exposed to these. I would be shaped differently too. Had I been exposed to different things. And I get that because the things I was exposed to shaped me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's crazy. And I mean, I don't have any judgment for, um, you know, women who want to, and this is the thing, once again, it's like for people who are hearing this, it could be triggering, but that's why I want to reemphasize, like, I don't have any judgment for people take, I take selfies. I've had things injected into my face. Like, I also like to look good. 
none of this is me saying like, I'm standing over here on this like hill of self-righteousness and I never do any of these things and I'm perfect. (laughs) This is the way all women should behave. Like it's not like that at all. We all live in this world. We're all socialized to behave the Mm -hmm. same way. And so we can, you know, look at the research and look at the data and and try to think critically in a way that makes us feel healthier, not in a way that makes us feel judged, Mm -hmm. not in a way that we blame ourselves like, well, why do I objectify myself? Or why do I want to look like such and such on Instagram? Or why does my partner follow this person on Instagram? And I'm not comfortable with it. We can look at the research and say, I understand why I feel this way. I understand why I want to change things about how I look or I understand why my partner follows these people. I don't have to judge us. I can now feel way more confident and secure in the fact that I know now it's about socialization and I don't have to like look down upon myself or look down upon my partner or look down upon other women. Um, I can just understand that we're all human. We're all figuring it out. A lot of this stuff is new to us. You know, like the internet is still a pretty new phenomena. We're still working out how to deal with it. We're still very, we're still kind of childlike on the internet, you know, like we're still growing up when it comes to the internet because it's still pretty new. Like this is still new stuff for us. The the fact that there's now filters out there that can, change the way your face shape is and now even they can change the way you look on a video like that's one of the newest things is like an app that changes your body while you video because previously you couldn't do that so we're still working out how to live in a world where this is the norm and we're still working out how to do it in a way that feels right for us it's not that it's right or wrong you know, like the right way is to never use filters and to you must love your body and you must never follow Instagram models. <laughs> and the right way <laughs> is just like the way that feels good for you, the way that's good for your health. Yeah, I think of that, you know, because all of a sudden it's like oh, Instagram models followings drop after Mark Grove's podcast with Laura <laughs> yeah, Of course, or like I'm sure there's an Instagram model listening. You know, it's like, that's the thing. It's not, I agree with you. It's not about shame or judgment. It is about um, asking how have these things shaped what I do and what I choose. That's the beautiful thing to get curious of like, wow, have I been brainwashed? Have I been taught this? Have I uh, adopted this message? Am I doing this from a place of love or from a place of fear? And that's, those are such great questions to ask. You know, like Mm. I used to take a hair loss drug, you know, so (laughs) I get it. I get it. That was because I was so worried about losing my hair. And I'm probably a bit of karma because I made fun of my friend when we were 21 for having a high <laughs> hairline. And then I lapped him and mine passed his. And uh, he, I remember him pointing at my hairline and being like, how are your cul-de-sacs now? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so let's let's go deeper. What else? What else mm. in the research we got? So here's another tricky thing. A lot of people, when you start having this conversation, there will be, the first reaction is women are jealous, women are insecure. Okay. The next thing will be sexuality is healthy. It's empowering. Don't ever judge how women choose to be sexual. And this is another way that's used to 
shut down the conversation. And you can see this with, um, I follow a lot of uh, relationship advice forums just to see what people are talking about. And I've noticed more and more women coming onto these forums to say, my partner follows a lot of Instagram models. And what I've noticed is that it starts with following and then it turns to commenting on their photos And then I notice that I think they're in the DMs, so they're private messaging. And then I see that they're signing up to their private Snapchat or their OnlyFans. So those are, you know, a a little bit more like pornography. There might be full nudity and and that's why they're paid for subscriptions. Mm. Um, I never heard OnlyFans. Yeah, OnlyFans is fairly new and it's really blown up with uh, COVID because so many people are at home. Um, So many content creators are not able to go out into the world and and create content. So a lot of people are being pushed into these sort of subscription model services. And and OnlyFans, um, I don't think is necessarily about pornography, but it's, I think it's got that kind of connotation now because so many um, women that usually create just, you know, kind of like sexy photos for Instagram um, are being pushed into a subscription service. So like OnlyFans and sort of needing to up the game a bit to get people paying. And like so it's some, this, some special images. Yeah. Yeah. That are a bit more than Instagram. And so it's this slippery slope. And I see a lot of women on on relationship forums talking about this sort of seeing their partner going down this path mm-hmm. and and one of the kickbacks is well you know some women feel empowered selling photos on OnlyFans so you should support your partner to do that and in fact um an article I wrote um a number of years ago was based on a story from a woman who contacted me to say that she thought her partner had a porn addiction. He didn't think of it as addiction, but for her, it felt very unhealthy. It felt like he spent quite a lot of time and a lot of money on porn. And so she wanted to go to a therapist and, and work this through. And so they went to therapy and she was full of hope and told her story to the therapist that, you know, this was really causing her a lot of distress. It was taking a lot of his time away. And and she felt he was, you know, less intimate as a result. And the therapist said, well, why don't you try? Why don't you try watching porn with him? What Like, what do you have against porn? Like, why are you judging it? Hmm, that's an interesting <laughs> response. <laughs> How did that work out? You know, terribly, because Ooh, this is man. someone who was vulnerable already. Yeah. Wow. That must be a pro porn in uh, you know uh person or at least has experience you know to to mm-hmm. to turn in that way there must be some sort of internal stuff perhaps that hasn't been processed about their own relationship to it or what they've mm-hmm. allowed in their life. You know, mm-hmm. not to pathologize it too much. I just put that therapist on the couch. Uh, let's go back to your childhood. <laughs> uh, I, I mean that is it, anytime something is taking up noticeable time, 
that's a pretty good sign that that it is, if it is getting in the way of intimacy and connection, it's a pretty good sign that that there's some form of addiction or some form of uh, obsessive behavior, or you're finding something in that experience. Like I, I said when I did that video, like I'm not judging. If I was 21 and there was Instagram, I would have for sure been following Instagram models and being dumb about it. And not to say that that's dumb. I'm saying I would be dumb about it, and I would have been. And now I just have no desire. You know, I have friends who are models, so I follow them, but mm. I don't follow people who just because their body is exceptional or something like that. You know, that to me is not interesting to me. And I also know that I don't want to follow someone if it is, if I'm not getting any value from whatever they're teaching or sharing, then, and I know what I'm doing is having a negative impact on my relationship. I personally don't feel like it's a great choice because one, I'm not getting any value from it other than arousal and two, it's impacting negatively my intimacy. So it is getting in the way of intimacy just by doing it, even if it's not affecting uh, our so, you know, our so-called sex life, like in quotes. Mm. See the, the tricky thing is that you, you came of sexual maturity at a time when there wasn't ubiquitous internet porn. Totally. Um, totally and right agree. now we're dealing with a generation who grew up during a time when there was ubiquitous internet porn. So um, one of the really tricky things here is that, um, you know, we get caught in this and I want to just go back to that childhood piece of where at that early age girls and boys start to feel quite different and you Mm -hmm. said well if I was young and I was on the internet I would be dumb like I would just do dumb things like I would you know follow all these people and I would make bad choices here's the tricky thing though it's not that you're dumb And it's very human that when we experience sexual arousal, our executive functioning shuts down. So if you're a young man, (laughs) there we go. I get it. (laughs) If you're a young man and you're growing up on the internet and you're constantly seeing these images, and I just want to point out one study that I think is really important here to not. Um, it's not about young boys are, you know, they're, they're just all obsessed with sex and, you know, boys just think this way and they're just, you know, they, they're dumb and no, 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 no. There's been a study that has looked at the way pornography has infiltrated trends that children follow. So, um, pornography companies, will look at search terms that young children search and they will insert pornography results into those Google searches. So the most common age for pornography use, the biggest group of pornography users in the world is boys from 12 to 17. Whoa. And it's not because boys 12 to 17 are gross and they're dumb and like they just don't think properly. No, 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 no. They're being targeted. So there are certain strategies that pornography companies are using 
to insert themselves into the lives of boys because they're looking at what are the Google searches boys do starting around the age 12? Like what are the things, the websites they surf? Like what are the kind of games they're playing? What are the apps they're using? And they insert very subtle ads. They're not like straight up porn. It's not like back when we were young. You know, sometimes when we were young, there would be this like, horrific porn just flash on the screen and you'd <laughs> like, be like <laughs> and you're like whoa or like penetration and you're just like i just yeah. wanted to figure out what the weather was <laughs> you know that well that is you know it's it's like a psyop you know it sounds yeah. like i mean this is how marketing companies have always worked but wow to think that they're targeting you know it's like searching call of duty and all of a sudden it's like call her and do, do your duty, you know, and whatever it is. Then all of a sudden, the guy's like, uh, the boy is like, oh, I wonder what this is. Maybe it's a cheat code. And all of a sudden, they end up down. And here's alley. the tricky thing, right? Because you were saying before, like, I, I, I would be dumb. I would choose the dumb thing. Think about it, though. They're inserting things that are slightly sexually arousing. So they're getting your brain to go, oh, what's that? Oh. There's, hmm, that looks a little bit sexy. And it's not because you're dumb. It's just because as soon as you get that little click of something's a little bit sexual, it flicks your brain into something sexual is happening. The way you're thinking changes in that very instant of, oh, I'm here to do my homework to, oh, something sexual is happening. And and it's so hard to not go down that path because the sexual drive is so much stronger than the executive function. I've got to do my homework. What is algebra X plus Y times yeah, two? Yeah. <laughs> X plus boobs, you know, like whatever it is. I mean, I think, okay, so when I was probably like 13, we got dial-up internet mm-hmm. and I would use the phone line all the time. But the it took a long time to download like a picture of a naked girl. Like I remember it would be like or whatever noise it would make. And then it would like literally I remember it just loading. And it would take so long. And so in some way you were like, I don't know if I have enough time. Will my parents walk in this room? You're, you know, you're like thinking by the time the boob comes, what will they see when it comes? And yeah. what will they say? You know, whatever it is. And it wasn't instantaneous. So I certainly can remember, though, what you said about homework. Oh, shit. This is a sexual moment. Like, for sure. Thinking like, well, I'm at the computer. Now I can look up, I don't know, Kathy Ireland or whatever was cool. I think I must have Googled that when she was in Playboy. Or Cindy Crawford, for sure, when she was in Playboy. And I'm sure like anyone who grew up in the 90s is like, yeah, I remember that moment. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. And I'm the only pervert on the podcast. But that's fine. <laughs> but I, I, I can acknowledge that, though, that the brain does switch very quickly. And it takes a lot of executive function to switch it back. Like it takes a lot of um, self-control, which I would argue in the generations that are occurring today the attention span is much shorter. So that must contribute to it too, in some sense. And remember what you were saying about how long it took to load something back in the day? 
all of that time that you spend waiting is time that your brain stops going into sexual arousal, mm. starts going into boredom, waiting. This is taking too long. You start thinking. As soon as you start thinking, the sexual arousals turned down, executive functionings turned up. You have the capacity to now make a conscious decision. Today, the internet is so instantaneous that there is no time, you know, like it's one and you see this with TikTok, you see this yeah. with with the way uh, Instagram videos are set up. It goes one video to the next. As soon as you click on something sexy, you're going down the rabbit hole. Sexy rabbit hole. <laughs> I've seen that on my, you know, like I on my Create the Love Instagram, I don't search booties and like chicks hiking in mountains and bikinis like i don't search those things and they come up in my home feed mm. you know where i'm like what is happening here like mm -hmm. they're target and of course my brain is like "Ooh, that is a butt on a mountain that makes sense i should go i wonder where that hike was <laughs> let me go check if they geotagged that hike you know that's not happening <gasps> it's so easy i know like when i used to buy maxim magazine do you know maxim magazine yeah so Maxim Magazine was like a pretty sexualized magazine. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I used to buy it, just feeling like some sense of frustration of like, this is giving me unrealistic expectations about the world. And I remember this, like my brain not being able to, it was like, yeah, I bought it for the gadget articles. Yeah. And let's be honest. And so it's fascinating to think about that transition of uh, sexuality versus executive function, because I can so relate to that even now, you know, with that home feed on Instagram, it's so easy to just click on one image. And then all of a sudden it just provides you with a feed to keep scrolling. Thank you, Instagram. You know, yeah. um, at least it does that for good things sometimes. So that's, I mean, there's a positive to that. Yeah. There's a lot of this content out there. Like I think conservative estimates say that like about 15% of all internet data is pornography. And that's not including that's not including all the sexy Instagram photos. That's just like the hardcore. That's content. straight up porn. That's yeah. just straight up porn. Not the like softcore or whatever yeah. it be referred to as. And and that's such an interesting line, because who gets to say it's softcore versus and that as a male, as a white straight male, I'm very mindful of the opinions I share on this. But because, you know, in some ways I might lineage has contributed so much to the over-sexualization. And then you look at how marketing appeals to those parts of no matter the gender or human's brain um, and drives, because that's true of, you know, we're so, all the things that influence us are so unconscious. And so I'm curious, like, how do in the research, how do they differentiate the line between um, empowerment and exploitation, or can they? Is that even something that's possible? <laughs> oh, that's a can of worms. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would imagine. Really, it's a real can of worms. Um, there's a lot of people within the academic world, particularly within the feminist academic world, who are staunchly protective of the idea of sexuality. And a lot of people are terrified of a return to a prudish Victorian anti-sex era. That's fair. And, yeah, uh, makes sense because that's kind of a lot of people's history. 
um, particularly in America where there's more, I mean, America, but also a number of countries where there is more uh, religious judgment of sex. Um, so, so I get that. Um, so the tricky thing is that there is a real divide in the research as to how we should, um, how we should define and measure what exploits and what empowers. And empowerment's really, for me, it's a very ambiguous um, and it's often quite meaningless um, in the research, at least. Um, empowerment can essentially mean anything. Let me give you one example. Um, a paper I've written recently was looking at um, women who are sexually exploited in frontier communities, as in communities who are just on the edge of economic development, like they're regional, rural, remote, um, and companies are just first starting up. And oftentimes when this happens, women are very vulnerable to sexual exploitation because this is the first time economic development is happening. There's money flooding the the new community. Um, and a lot of women are suddenly offered these opportunities. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these opportunities are exploitative. Um, and, you know, one of the best ways to exploit someone is to sexually exploit them. There's a higher price tag on sexual exploitation as compared to domestic exploitation, just, you know, sending them to work in a household as opposed, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, a kind of brothel or porn or whatever it might be. Um, and so there is a real split in the research. And one of the things that was shocking to me was that the feminist research, so this is technically pro-women, was saying, well, you know, even if it is exploitation and these are poor women and, like, they don't have the language skills or the ability to negotiate, like, well, you know, Maybe they want to do it. Who are you to say? Ooh, that's a real, <laughs> like that's, I can't imagine that's very trauma informed as a. No. And, right. and the, the, the crazy thing is the human rights research, which is not specifically for women, but it's just based on a human rights perspective, would say that, you know, sexual exploitation is a human rights violation. And so it's really. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about like, oh, but, you know, maybe sometimes the person is comfortable with the exploitation and sometimes they're not comfortable with the exploitation. So, like, let's talk about that. No, the human rights perspective would be it's exploitation full stop. Like, we don't negotiate with exploitation because it's, it's a uh. human rights violation. So we're not negotiating. It's, it's a no from us. Isn't that why we have laws about age and consent and age mm -hmm. difference too, you know, in that sense, because, uh, you know, as much as someone says, this is what I want to do, they don't necessarily have the maturity yet to make those types of decisions. Um, and, and then I think of it in the context of, like you were saying, it, perhaps it's a, a, an avoidance of going back to the very restrictive and, judgmental and shame-based uh, Victorian era, but I think you can look historically and every culture had its version of that. It was just under a different label, usually a religious label. Uh, 
And so we're so afraid of such constriction that we won't put any sort of conversation around this or shame around it, which, because of course, if you share it, as soon as you say uh, exploit, there's like, uh, if anyone feels any shame about what they're putting on the internet or whatever they're doing, then it's, it's instantly can then get the defense of like, um, I guess, which is what the feminist uh, researchers that you're talking about are doing. And that's interesting because I don't want to touch that line. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm fucked if I go around that. But I do, I am curious to it because you and I have spoken about this uh, before. And I've also had this conversation on the podcast with um, uh, Amy Young about the, okay, well, if, if, if toxic masculinity is the abuse of power, um, and, and control to get sex and whatever, then what is that idea of, which I prefer the term like immature masculinity or undeveloped or some unintegrated. Um, and it's interesting, like what is the, that version in the female side? And, you know, it's, it's a touchy subject because I want to explore it. I think it's an interesting subject uh, and it's safe to explore the side of male, but what is that other side? And I, I sort of think of like all of the things we do that are overtly sexual now seem to be a response to that Victorian era, you know, that we were over-controlled. So we're all like have these, um, I don't want to say unhealthy, but like uh, maybe like unintegrated or sometimes immature relationships with the sexual content we consume. Mm, that's so funny that you said that because I was having this conversation with someone just the other day about what would constitute the toxic feminine because we talk so much about the toxic masculine um another and you're opening another can of worms here because once again we're talking about women who have already felt judged women who've grown up to be socialized to one judge our bodies and then two, judge ourselves for judging our bodies. And then three, judge other women for judging their bodies. And then feel shame about all of those things, feel shame about sex, feel shame about pleasure. And then we're like, well, let's talk about toxic fe femininity. That'll fix it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And when we're like, fuck, have you not judged us enough? Like, can we live for a second? So I get that. I get, I get that. that. That makes so much sense. And that's why I think it's such a delicate subject. It is. Of course. Like, I'm just curious about it. But I also know it's like, give some, <laughs> give them a second to breathe. <laughs> I get that. I, uh, yeah, look, I wrote this article about, um, I wasn't going to bring this up because it's very, People get very touchy about the subject of pole dancing. Um, so back when, uh, remember J-Lo and Shakira did a halftime Super Bowl show and there was a big conversation about like, too sexy and then everyone was like stop judging them for being sexy you're just a prude and they're like no it's it's too much it's too sexual and they're like well you just need to get over it because you're just you're religious and you're conservative and there was this big blow up and I wrote an article about I actually do think there is some harm 
in the way women are routinely presented as sexual objects. And there is a conversation to be had for women who perpetuate the problem, the Kim Kardashians of the world. And it's here's the tricky thing. On the one hand, these are women who are playing the game. Like we've grown up in a world where we have to play the game a certain way. We have to look a certain way. We have to behave in a certain way. And then when we do it, we get called out for that. And when we don't do it, we get called out for that. So I understand that people are just sick of the judgment. You know, it it all all feels like judgment. Um, So I get that. It's, it's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Like if, if yeah. you don't play up the sexiness, you don't take hot photos, you don't post your photos on the internet, you're invisible, you're a loser, no one cares, no one's interested, you're gone. If you do it, well, you're objectifying yourself, you're selling women out. Like what are you doing? Like that's that's too much. Have some respect for yourself. Aren't you a mom? Like, so, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. But I think there is another conversation, which is like, there is a problem with the fact that we are playing the game as women. And like, we have to have that conversation, which is like, how do we stop playing this game? Like, how do we say that that there's an issue with the way we see, you know, J-Lo and Shakira doing pole dancing on daytime TV without it being like a judgment on all women, without it being like, oh, I hate J-Lo and Shakira, oh, I hate sex. But actually there's a problem with the way we're portraying women and there's a problem with the way this blows up into a conversation about you're either pro-women or you're anti-women. There's something else there, there's something below that, and we're avoiding it because we keep getting into this back and forth. You know, you're either with us or you're against us. And we're kind of missing the point, which is that, you know, this is doing real harm. This is harming women. The fact that we keep seeing objectification of women as the only way to exist in the world is harming women and it's harming girls and girls are growing up in this world where it's the wallpaper. Like it's not just you occasionally see a sexy woman. It's literally everywhere. It's in everything. It's like every, and you can see this on Instagram. It's like the health influences, the yoga influences, the fitness influences, the travel influences. It's like the sexiness is intertwined and it's threaded through and you can never get away from it. So there's a conversation to be had about like, how do we start confronting that? How do we start shifting that without it being a place of judgment or without a place of being against someone else or against ourselves even? Wow. Yeah, that's a big, it's certainly a big subject because I think of if I was someone who was, you know, let's say had a mountain climb an account and I like to post, uh, I don't know, like as a dude, I over-sexualize my mountain account. I think it's harder to do in the context of men because it doesn't really relate as much because we're not celebrated as much for that. Although, you know, you don't have to go far to find some shirtless mirror selfies, especially on Tinder. But the, I do think like if you 
did start to sexualize your travel account and all of a sudden it starts to do so much better and then your business starts to do better you're right there's like a play a playing of the game that the game is rewarding you for and that is such a double bind because you know in some way as you said there's no way to win and and that's both of how you show yourself and how you might um get curious about what you see and want to ask questions you know like how do we move forward in this conversation without the ability to say like why is it that the only time i get celebrated is when i objectify myself on my instagram page you know like mm -hmm. it's an interesting thought of and is it a conversation that people even really want to have mm -hmm. you know because they're like just show me another booty pic you know like, <laughs> enough well, a lot of people are, you know, grew up uh, with religious shame around sex. And so, you know, they don't want to have this conversation uh, that feels to them a bit like more of the same. Yeah. Um, and, and I can know, you know, like I, I'm not religious. I didn't grow up religious. I have no shame about sex. I, and this is a funny thing. Um, pe a lot of people think that if you think critically about this stuff, you're anti-sex. You know, if you think critically about Instagram modeling or porn or any of these things, you're anti-sex. You're, you're anti-women, you're, you're anti-sexuality, you know, you're, you must be frigid. Um, and there's a great uh, journalist that I love, Lydia Cacho. She's done a lot of investigative journalism around the sex trade and looking at how exploitation occurs and how it's tied into corruption and, and so many other things that we, we don't know at the surface as consumers. We don't realize there's all of these dark things that happen in these industries. And she always starts her speeches about exploitation by saying, I love sex. I'm all for sex. You know, like there is not a single part of me that doesn't like sex, sexual expression, different sexual acts. I'm, I love all of it, but I want to talk about exploitation. <laughs> and it's so funny to me that you, you have to put that on the table first because people go, well, if you're anti-sex, if you're religious, if you're prudish, we don't want to hear from you. We don't care. You're gone. And the funny thing is, that's the same thing that we do when women don't look the way we think they should look. If you're not sexy enough, if you're not hot, if you're not posting cool photos, you're gone. If you're prudish, if you're religious, if you're uptight about sex, you're gone. And that's crazy to me. I'm not religious. I'm not uptight. I certainly... <laughs> take lots of photos that people would probably be very uncomfortable with. Um, so, you know, like I don't care that people think that, but I feel for people like being religious is a valid thing to be. I'm not sure why it is we've decided that if someone's religious, they have to be cast out of all conversation. Like a good portion of the world, particularly in the developing world in less developed countries, people really, um, gain a lot of strength and a lot of value from their religious beliefs. And that's a valid way to be. I mean, there's downsides to it. Yes. Like we know <laughs> for sure. Everybody knows the downsides, but at the same time, like we can't, you know, we shouldn't be shaming anyone's sexual expression. We shouldn't be shaming 
you know, if women want to take hot photos, go bananas, do whatever you want. But also, let's not shame people who are religious, who do, you know, have a belief system or a faith system. Those, those are both valid ways of being in the world. Um, and, and I don't really do either of them. So I have equal empathy for both <laughs> for different Same. ways of yeah. being. And it's, it, I think a lot of the backlash maybe to the religious side of that is because mo- our experience historically is that the majority of any form of sexualization was judged by religious. So it's like, mm. we just look at religion and go, you are such a point of shame and, and, and pain that I, I reject all religion and then I'll find religion, but I'll find it through modern spirituality, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'll call it the universe instead of God. And, um, you know, which I understand because I'm, you know, having been raised Catholic and I think a lot of, uh, a lack of sexual education and a lot of shame-based teaching occurred when I was a kid. So, I reject, I don't want anything to do with the Catholic church. And then I found spirituality through nature, through, um, you know, things like, like being able to refer to it as the universe rather than God. Although Mm -hmm. my, uh, my relationship to the word God has certainly softened in the most recent years. Um, but immediately I would do exactly what you say, which is reject any form of, um, is religiosity a word, any form of religiosity. Um, mm. because I would instantly be like, you're where I feel my pain. Like your belief system has been the source of my rejection and a lot of disempowerment. Um, mm. with that said, I couldn't, you know, male sexuality was not necessarily in some ways, yes, shamed by religion, but in some ways propped up and, um, you know, look at the, you know, I think of some of the, not to get into those controversies, but a lot of the churches even protected male sexuality and um, demonic sexual behavior from men, um, mm. you know, and so I think they're, you know, that's a whole other can of worms, of course. Well, that's an important point, though, because I think one of the things that can happen for women when, you know, a lot of women, we wake up to the fact that we've been living in a world that is tilted against us you know that the odds are not really in our favor when it comes to how we feel about our bodies and then we realize that how we feel about our bodies means a lot as to how effective we can be in the world and I think it's uh Naomi Wolf who's written a book on this called The Beauty Myth and she talks about the diet industry and the beauty industry and how they're not really about losing weight or looking a certain way. They're really about pacifying women. Um, and they're really about, you know, wasting our time and our energy and our life force and putting all of those into these things that really won't allow us to reach our full potential as human beings, but they'll keep us busy working on our bodies, trying to fix our bodies, trying to look better, trying to be hot, doing all these things that essentially stop us from living. Um, But you're touching on an important thing, which is that when we go down this path, we, we can think, well, you know, it's all in men's favor. It's all set up to help men and it's all set up to, you know, position women as lesser and, in some regards, that's true, but I, I also think we can get stuck in not understanding that no one wins. Mm-hmm. Um, men lose too. And um, again, it's Naomi Wolf who talks about 
the the way we're set up for women to work to perfect and beautify and make themselves sexy so that men will choose them and and men do the choosing so we think they have the power but really not, neither of us get to connect because and you talk about this a lot we create this mask we're creating the version of ourselves that we think the other person wants and women mm-hmm. do it through the beauty practices through you know thinness hotness hot selfies all the you know thirst trapping on the internet and men do it through you know how much money they earn how tough they are how good their car is neither of us get to be real people um and when we're connecting with the other person primarily because you know they look a certain way so you know this person turns me on and and that works for a time but we've really cheated ourselves of the deeper connection um, and Naomi Wolf has a wonderful quote about this, and it's that, you know, you you can create an amazing economy of consumers by trapping women into trying to look the perfect way and trapping men into trying to catch the woman that looks the perfect way. Mm-hmm. Both of them continually wow. spending money, you know, spending money on how they look, spending money on getting the person, spending money, spending money never getting the thing because it's always out of reach. Like you're never going to be hot enough. And and for the man, you can see this with men who upgrade, upgrade, I'm putting that in quotations, to a younger woman every few years, you know, because it's never enough. You never fill mm. that hole. You never fill the void because the, the void has been put there for a reason. And it's this myth that's keeping you trapped. It's not that we're not hot enough. It's that we're not connected enough. Do you think it's marketing companies that were the, you know, cause I, I look historically and I'm like, okay, well we didn't have marketing in grandma in, you know, on mass, uh, like in terms of TV and newspaper till I don't know what time, but it's more recent in history. Um, and you think of like the relational structures, of course, patriarchy has created this from a fertility versus power and mate selection um, and how that's an agricultural revolution influencing these things. But I'm curious, do you think it's marketing that deepens it and perpetuates it? Like uh, companies selling appliances started that in the 50s, you know, and um, I forget the term, but cigarette companies use that with the women who, what are they called? Torches of freedom. Yeah. Um, I think it was in the first world war, you know, where these, and, and so it's, yeah. Do you think it's marketing that perpetuates this? I don't want to blame it all on marketing because um, we have seen with the way Instagram has exploded that people will create their own content even in the absence of marketing. But mm-hmm. um, let me. there's a couple of studies that are really interesting about the power of traditional media marketing on how people behave. So one interesting study was in Brazil where – they wanted to, um, I think they wanted to decrease the birth rate. So on average, this this was back in like the 80s, on average, people were having three to four children and they wanted to reduce it to about two children per family. And so instead of doing 
traditional, like, you know, public health announcements and boring government stuff. The government put money into daytime soap opera TV shows. They were called soap operas for anyone, daytime TV, which now it's probably Netflix, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they showed everyone on daytime TV having two children. And mm. through this process of showing daytime TV for with two children over several years, the birth rate rapidly changed and it was like far more effective than any public health move ever could have possibly been. Mm. Um, So it can be used for good. There's another really interesting study uh, that came out of Fiji. This was the 80s or 90s, I think. Fiji, um, and this happens in, in many developing economies, never had uh, recorded eating disorders or body image disorders. So women at this point in time had never presented to the doctor saying, you know, I feel disgustingly fat despite the fact that they're thin and they're starving themselves. And, you know, so anorexia wasn't present. Bulimia wasn't present. None of these things were happening. But then the TV was introduced into Fiji and people started seeing, you know, typical representations of thin women and marketing for, you know, fashion and beauty and all of this. And out of nowhere, all these women started presenting to doctors with signs of bulimia and anorexia. Um, So the media is incredibly powerful at shaping the way we live. Incredibly powerful. And, And the thing that's quite shocking for me is that, you know, um, where less young people are less engaged with traditional marketing, like they're not watching daytime TV, like these studies say, for example, but they're on like TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram. And the crazy thing is, is that we're producing the same kind of content, like we're producing the same body types by virtue of whether it's just our natural inclination to show like thin hot, sexy. And, you know, this is, and this is what I say, it's not about judging people. It's part of our brain that we, we have in our brain a way of picking up when something is marked for sexual attractiveness. Um, it's something that is innate and it's hardwired and it's no one's fault. And children do this. Um, you, there's a study where they present children with like two dolls and they're very, very young children. So they're not really able to think critically, you know, they're three and four years old and they present them with, you know, a Barbie doll that's all done up and you know how Barbies look. They're incredibly unrealistic. If you actually compare a Barbie and you blow it up to a human size proportion, you know, she has like a double G bust and like a 20 inch waist and she's like seven feet tall and it's so (laughs) disproportionate. Um, but they, they would present like a Barbie and then an actual regular sized, what would be proportionate to human proportions, a doll that just is normal. And they say to the little children, which one do you think is more popular, has more friends? And they will always pick the Barbie. They, they There's just <sighs> something in us. <laughs> They're just, it's like. Wow, that is so interesting. 
Yeah. You think I remember reading a study about babies that like babies are more responsive to faces that measure in higher symmetry. And what was really interesting was the caveat that if someone was asymmetrically considered like that you or I would consider attractive, but it was asymmetric, but it was like a unique feature, they were responsive to that look too. So there's something our brains code as attraction, which tends to be symmetry that Mm. is just innate. That's just hardwired But that information about the Barbie that's, and then you think actually having a doll like that just further reinforces the same thing, which I, you know, it's like, yes, on, it's interesting to think, is it the chicken or the egg? Like, is it the perpetuated, Mm. because it seems at one point, these, like you said, Fiji, did that intervention, the by accident intervention of placing a TV, which then leads to these wanting to model myself like the leading lady or the leading man or whatever it is that, and the advertisements and what they look like. So I want to look like that. So then that starts to shift though, what is attraction, what is desired. So I wonder if that then changes the brains, because that you know, there's the studies of these young kids. I wonder if that's genetically sort of imprinted at this point, and so the content that's being created on Instagram, that or TikTok or whatever it is, that seems to not have the momentum of uh, marketing as much. Although I would argue that marketing companies are probably in, uh, investing money in people who still perpetuate those bodies, so then they still have their hands in content creation because you know it's not someone with um a non-marketable body till we see movements and rising up and like us saying enough of this bullshit and then companies invest in something to sort of like uh, you know as that term has been used a lot in the black lives movement like performative allyship that it becomes mm-hmm. performative um and then you know dove i know had that really successful right? Which you alluded, I think we're referencing earlier, like, we'll just put a bunch of bodies on there. And I don't think Dove really sexualized them. And it was an interesting ad campaign because it did finally market to inclusivity and it wasn't really sexualized. Mm. Um, But I guess if you have women in their underwear on television innately, that can be sexualized. It's, uh, It's interesting. So two things. One is that um, you know, for people who have been shut out of being sexy, and so these are the people who you're either religious or you're not hot enough, you're not thin enough, you're not taking hot photos. So you essentially don't have this cultural currency, as it were. You're not on the internet like showing photos and getting the, yeah, you go, girl, you're hot. And it's, it feels like you're missing out on something. And so when you get to start seeing people like yourself presented as hot and sexy, it's like, well, finally, like, yeah, I can be hot and sexy. <laughs> like, why were you not including me? It's a catch-22, though, because seeing your body type sexualized doesn't necessarily lead to greater self-confidence and so that's the catch and I said Mm. this before about people often think that the way to resolve this issue 
is to just tell all women they're hot all the time. And we do this as women. We constantly tell our friends, like, you look amazing. No, you do. No, you're hotter. No, you're hotter. Um, And unfortunately, it has this catch-22 effect where it traps us into still seeing ourselves from the outside observer's point of view. Um, Even though it's a positive one, it still taxes our cognitive capacity to be living in and through our bodies rather than looking and judging our bodies. Unfortunately, even when we try and do it in a positive way, and so that's the thing, like I said, about the the study that told people to think about how they looked, it still impacts you if you're told positive things about how you looked. It still taxes your ability to think as quickly, to have higher executive functioning, to, you know, perform well on tests, it still taxes you, unfortunately. Um, So, yes, we do need to um, expand the people we see and we need to see all kinds of bodies and understand that all bodies are just as worthy. But we also need to understand that constantly focusing on how bodies look is not necessarily the solution. Um, And that's a real catch-22, that Dove campaign you're talking about. Um, Susie Orbach was very involved with that campaign, and she is a psychotherapist who's been working on body image for many decades. And, in fact, I think I recommended her to you because you were like, I want to talk about Botox and how Botox actually affects women. And I was like, well, you've got to talk to Susie Orbach She's, you know, one of the OGs of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, she was Princess Diana's therapist um, when she was going through issues with um, eating, and she's written several books on this. And she was involved in getting Dove to change their advertising, and they did uh, put a lot of funding actually into um, supporting women with uh, body image and eating disorders. But the catch is that, you know, Dove is part of Unilever and Unilever is involved in so many problematic marketing campaigns that rely on sexist, typical, traditional stereotypes. Um, So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a catch-22. You know, we want to shift the conversation. We want to get more funding for treatment. There is incredibly poor funding for eating disorders and eating disorders are actually one of the most deadly of all mental illnesses. Um, Anorexia in particular is incredibly deadly and there's almost no treatment available. There's almost no uh, mental health beds available for people with anorexia. So we really want to get funding for this, but unfortunately (laughs) sometimes we have to collaborate with companies that we know like what you're doing is still a little bit harmful. So, you know, it's a catch-22. Like I love Susie Orbach's work and they created a bunch of campaigns. Lots of people probably remember the Dove ads where they got women to describe how they looked and sketched them and a professional artist yeah, sketched them. I remember yeah. that. And then they compared with how they really looked and women didn't see themselves as beautiful as the artist saw them when they just sketched them by looking at them. So, And so this is what body image means. It's the visual representation you have of how you look in your mind. And for a lot of women, the way we think we look, the way we picture ourselves looking 
is much worse than we actually look. And so, look, one of the solutions is to think about yourself in more positive ways, to to know that, you know, you are beautiful and, you know, all types of people and all types of bodies can be beautiful. There's no limits. It is what you make it. And that's why there's lots of models kind of bursting onto the scenes right now who look different. And we're like, oh, thank God, like all people can be beautiful finally. But also I would say another part of it is to to, to not spend so much time in that part of our brain that's thinking about how we look. Because as soon as you spend time, and this is, again, going back to this childhood thing of boys think about what their bodies can do, girls think about how their bodies look. As soon as you start thinking about what your body can do and you start thinking about the sport you're going to play or that you're really good at this particular thing or, you know, you're involved in politics or whatever it is, you just switch off that part of your mind that's worried about how you look and that kind of mm. monitoring self-feedback. It's just you you can't do both at the same time. As soon as you say, no, I'm focusing on this thing, I'm playing sport or I'm focusing on my project or I'm studying, the other stuff gets shut off. And it's so much healthier to be in that executive function in that part of your brain that's doing things than in the part of your brain that's thinking about how you look. I would imagine that Instagram is one of those things that would automatically put us in that space if we're, one, following people like that, or they're populating our home feed. If we spend time on our home feed, I mean, of course, the solution is don't spend time on your home feed. That is like the one that's populated with suggestions. Because I would, it would just instantly put you in that state. Oh, look how hot that person is. I'm not hot, you know, or whatever. Look at those abs. I don't have abs like that, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's such a, it seems like everything is a trap, you know, when yeah. you talk about it that way that, uh, you know, although the one thing about on-demand streaming services is without commercials, you're not... Mm-hmm inundated with that anymore um and if you you know but the the privileged get to avoid ads on youtube so there again is sort of like uh, you avoid the ad but the people who don't invest in that or can't afford it are still being inundated with advertisements so mm. you know it's such a wow it, this world is a fucking it's a minefield Um, One of the interesting things about Instagram, this was before TikTok, a study that looked at how social media impacts us and how it impacts our mental health and how we feel about ourselves. So Instagram is by far the most harmful social media app at that time. That was pre-TikTok and might have even been pre-Snapchat. On average, by the time you've spent half an hour on Instagram, you will feel significantly worse about yourself than you did prior to opening the app. So it's very quick. And like you say, it's just those quick images. Um, And one really important thing is that a lot of people will say, just don't look or, you know, just support women. If that's how they want to post, just let them do it. Like there's nothing, you know, get over it. So one really important thing is that Um, images have an incredibly powerful effect on our minds, even when we don't know they're affecting our minds. For example, one interesting thing, which I never really thought of before I studied psychology, but 
You can't look at a word in a language you know without reading it. Your mind reads. You don't look at a word and go, oh, don't read that. Don't, you know, that that thing there says sex. I won't read it though. <laughs> You've already read it just by looking at it. Um, and there was a really good study that was about the the impact of uh, images on our memory and our ability to um, come up with ideas. And so this study was really cool because it was uh, the participants that were involved in the study didn't know that they were in the study at the time they started the study. So what they did is they said, we're going to pick you up from your house. They have this you know, sample of people. They said, we're going to, a driver's going to pick you up at this time. We drive you to the lab. You do a bunch of little quizzes and then we drive you home. The thing was, while they were being driven from their home to the lab, they were intentionally driving them past a series of billboards that had images on them. But they didn't tell them this. They didn't tell them, look out. They didn't tell them anything was happening. They just said the quiz is happening in the lab. That's all you need to know. So when they got to the lab, they said, like, we want you to draw a picture for, you know, uh, we're going to do an ad for this particular brand of soap. So could you draw us a picture of what you think it would be and, you know, what kind of language would you use? And what they found was that the people who went through this route of billboards all came up with the same kind of ads. And they thought they were coming up wow. with new creative ideas. They were like, oh, I've got this. It's, you know, just I just made this up off the spot. It's just what I'm thinking of. But they would use the same type of numbers and the same type of images that had been in the billboards wow. on the route to the ad. Uh, but the people who hadn't gone on this particular route with the billboards would come up with totally random things. So wow. the images we're seeing, even though we don't know we're seeing them, they didn't know they were looking at billboards. They weren't told to look at the billboards. They were just driving. Even though we don't know we're seeing things or perhaps we're not even trying and that's why people say, like, we just don't look. And it's like, yeah, you can try to not look, but, you know, we see thousands of images a day. Our brain just soaks it up. It's not that yeah. you can just turn it off. Like, the brain doesn't turn off. And that's why I say if you look at a, a word in English, you've already read it by looking at it. You can't stop your brain from uh, interpreting what it's seeing. We just, it, we can't switch off. Unfortunately, that's one of the brilliant things about our brains. You can't switch them off. <laughs> They're always on. To think about how that affects us in terms of the large amount of image consumption we must do now, like versus when I was a kid, because I wasn't inundated with digital images all the time versus mm -hmm. now people are just like absorbing unconscious information and ways of being. And you know, I talk about this all the time, the power of the unconscious that you don't even know, you know, relationally, we don't know why we do things that are unhealthy for us because we haven't, we haven't brought forward all the images of all the things we've absorbed that are becoming rules of how to be and how to live. And we know that relationally, but it's, of course, this is so true. Why would that stop when it has to do with our body or beliefs about sex or anything like that? Yeah. And this is why it's so powerful when we continually see women presented in ways that are sexy. Yeah, whatever that means. Okay, so there's a quote from Naomi Wolf, and she says, to live in a culture where women are routinely naked while men aren't is to learn inequality in little ways all day long. Mm. 
even if we can agree that sexual imagery is just a type of language, it's clearly a language that is heavily edited to protect men's sexual and social confidence while undermining that of women. And I love that because I think I'm not so much focusing on the part of protecting men. I think it can actually harm men as well. But certainly there's, and that's, it comes back to that childhood thing. When you're eight and 10 years old, you already are seeing girls feeling undermined, feeling less confident, feeling their bodies being judged. And boys are not feeling their bodies being judged. They're feeling powerful. They're feeling confident. They're feeling sports are more important. They're feeling how they can, you know, run and play with their friends are more important. So we're learning inequality in little ways. And it's these little things, the little, the things that are kind of like the wallpaper. We don't notice them. We're not actually looking for them. They're just kind of there in the background, Um, And that's why they're so important. And that's why I really appreciated when someone asked you, like, what are you meant to do about your partner following Instagram models? It, you know, it really affects women. And it's not as simple as like, well, just be more confident, just get over it, you know, just don't be jealous. Like, this is a real problem for, for all people, not just women. It's really affecting people's relationships very significantly. Yeah. And men in those scenarios don't even know, like they don't realize how much it's getting in the way of intimacy and how much it's actually in a way giving them small hits or large hits of dopamine that allow them to not have to sit in negative feelings or sit in the fact that their partner is upset with them because they're doing this thing that they don't agree with or is impacting their partner. And, you know, I, as you said, I, this, also has a negative impact on men. And I think for us as men to be able to turn towards the shame we're likely going to feel when this is brought up and to say, okay, well, why do I do that? Why am I willing to double tap this picture at the cost of my relationship and, and, and have this conversation in a non-judgmental way, but say like, what has socialized both of us um, that this is something that is really operating at the fabric of connection and getting in the way of connection and inhibiting our ability, as you mentioned earlier, to be our authentic selves without the mask, not showing up as the sexiest possible thing and not showing up as this powerful, you know, guy who, what do they call it? A $50,000 millionaire when someone spends all their money on a car or gets like a real, just so they have a fancy car. You know, and the, and both people get to be themselves. And gosh, to be able to be yourself in this world is really, in so many ways, privilege. It's such a privilege because we're all operating by these rules, these old ways of being that continue to be perpetuated. But I think we're seeing the real, true mental health costs of this now. Like they're coming out in so many more ways. And, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, they're like the continued disconnect connection from our just natural way of being. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, these have infiltrated our natural ways of being and become uh, default natural ways of being, which, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we get to choose, but you don't realize you have a choice if you're watching a sexy image. And as you said, you're a high functioning part of your brain is shut off. So Mm -hmm. 
And it's, um, you're right, it's having really significant impacts. Like the rates of anxiety and depression for young women keep going up and we keep seeing that those have connections to body image. And also for young people in particular, their sexual relationships are getting worse and the way they relate to one another as male and female, um, the, the attitudes are actually getting worse. Shockingly, there was a study not so long ago in Australia that showed young men's attitudes about sexism were actually more old-fashioned than their grandparents. What? So they were more likely, yeah, they were more likely Is this to a think, recent study? Yeah, this, I think this was about 2012 maybe. Like oh, when shit. Yeah, that's not that long ago. Um, but it was basically that, you know, women should look a certain way and they should behave a certain way and there's nothing wrong with that. And so here's one really important thing that I just want to point out. For for people who are struggling with, you know, the fact that it feels heavy, that their partner, you know, follows a bunch of these women or uses a lot of pornography or whatever it might be, it really does have an impact on our relationships and the way we we relate to women and one another. And there was one, actually, there's a meta-analysis, which is the best type of study, which brings together all of the studies done on this topic and compares all of the data, so thousands of pieces of data. And what they found was when someone is exposed to pornographic imagery and then given a quiz on, you know, what do you think about women? Like, what do you think about sexual harassment? What do you think about sexual assault? And then a group of people who aren't shown any type of pornographic imagery, they're just given the quiz. And when people are primed with pornographic imagery, on average, they tend to think that women are more deserving of judgment they're more deserving it's that she asked for it attitude for sexual harassment and they tend to think that women are less competent um less capable and less equal to men so when we're seeing this pornographic imagery it really is weighing down on the way we feel about ourselves and the way we feel about other women um, and it's not that, you know, it's, it means that the people that are thinking these things are, are nasty and they're all just sexist. No, it, it happens to men and women alike because, like I said before, when we're sexually aroused, our executive functioning shuts down. So it opens up the space for, you know, the, the darker fear, anger, all of those things that live in the, the sort of recesses underneath the executive functioning, these things have the space to build and that's where the, the negative attitudes come from and the judgment and and the lack of you know seeing women as equal humans and seeing women as being important and and you know having needing to be on an equal playing field as men unfortunately all of this media does feed those negative uh, aspects of the way we we judge and treat women so it is really important. It's not just like a, oh, why do they follow Instagram models? That's a silly thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like it is an important conversation. And one thing that you talk about that I think is really important here is that a lot of the way that we're harmed as women or men, but the way that we feel judged, the way we feel 
mistreated, all of those things happen in relationship to other people. And the way we heal it is through relationship to other people. So if we're having this challenge right now in our relationship where I feel like my partner follows a bunch of models, I feel like my partner watches way too much porn, I'm not comfortable with it, this is the opportunity to heal it is in this space. And you talk about this a lot where your relationship can be the container that can hold all of these things. It's not that we have to throw the whole thing away. Mm -hmm. Uh, The relationship can grow and expand to hold, you know, the way you've been hurt by this and the way your partner's been hurt by this. And we can come together and heal and there can be space for both of those things. Yeah, for us to look within. I mean, I'm so grateful that this question that got submitted has led to such a important dialogue, you know, and mm-hmm. and one that um is is just so incredibly important for our relationships and our connection and our intimacy and uh and to do it in a non-judgmental, non-triggering, sort of objectively unbiased way. And I hope for the people listening that we've danced in that space uh, relatively well. Uh, you know, that is my, my hope, but I'm sure, you know, sometimes I don't say things in the exact right way in the right order, but that's the courageous nature of having conversations like this is they're not happening a lot. And so when they happen, uh, there are new information and new ways of thinking and um, also bring up things that maybe we don't love about what we're doing with ourselves. And so, to me, that's always, whenever we get triggered, it's like, just get curious why, what's there for us? Because that's true for me when I get triggered. So mm-hmm. Laura, thank you for being here and for sharing your heart, your thoughts, your wisdom, the work that you do. I really appreciate you. And I'm sure everyone listening echoes the same sentiments. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I hope this was really helpful. Oh, incredibly. I've learned a lot. and I'm. I'm sure people are wondering where do they find more of you. So if you could share oh, yeah. your details for the people, please. We'll um, also put it in the show notes. Okay, so I mean, you can find me mostly on Instagram. <laughs> the one thing that we've been saying is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there too. Please just follow two people. <laughs> well, that's the beauty. Like you get to choose. Unfortunately, you can't get rid of everything, but you can choose some positive things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Instagram. My handle is actual psychology. I tend to share most of my articles there. I don't share a whole bunch of stuff, but I do tend to share my articles. And the other thing I would point out is is just a couple of resources for people. There is a wonderful book by Naomi Wolf, who I quoted. That's called The Beauty Myth. That's a really great introductory read for women who are struggling with this. And one wonderful account on Instagram that is really into this conversation is Beauty Redefined. Um, Their handle is Beauty Redefined, and there are two PhDs who studied the whole gambit of all of this stuff for their PhDs, and they've created a whole account that's just full of really positive resources for these kind of conversations. No, oh, that sounds wonderful. I look forward to mm. following them myself and picking mm-hmm. up that book because I always like to in, engage in more knowledge of what it's like to be on the other side uh, mm-hmm. because it just helps inform us. So if you're male and you want to be more informed about the subject, please do it. So thank you, Laura, for being here. I appreciate you. 
And、uh, I look forward to having you back on soon. Amazing. Thank you. 